and welcome again to the Disney animated Cannonball, the podcast where I, Foxley, she, her, and Tully, he, him, watch every Disney animated canon movie in sequence because we're bored and we gotta do something. I also think it's a testament to your personal attitude towards completionism where <laughs> when you found out that of these 50 movies I'd seen like 10, like, well... We've got to fix that, and there's a list! Well, I mean, you're a media studies nerd, so there's a certain background radiation literacy that, that you just really should have to talk about some subjects authoritatively. That's fair enough, but then again, I don't pretend to talk about the Disney movies authoritatively. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, it would be boring if we were like, let's rewatch and podcast the six Disney movies we actually love. Yeah. And so... uh, ignore all the bad ones. <laughs> yeah, and if we'd done that, we wouldn't have had to watch Winnie the Pooh. It's true. Would it have been worth it? We wouldn't have had to watch The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. It's true. We would have seen a little less in the way of racism from Peter Pan. Anyway, we watched 1991's Beauty and the Beast, the next step of the Disney Renaissance and the continuation of the boringly excellent train. <laughs> oh boy, everybody, it's the 90s. It's the Disney Renaissance. It's... It totally Ariel again. But <laughs> she's in France this time, and she's a monster fucker. <laughs> All right. But before we can discuss this movie, we must give the plot in 60 seconds. Right, right. And I believe it's your turn this week. All right. You ready? All right. Go. Uh, Belle is a young lady from a provincial town in France that somehow is still large enough to have a dedicated hat shop and bookstore in an era where most people aren't literate. Then she talks about how she doesn't want to live there the rest of her life. Her wild invent inventor father goes off to ply his invention in a neighboring town, gets lost, winds up at the castle of a dreadful beast who is a transformed noble who uh, imprisons him. Belle goes to recover him. When she goes to recover him, she trades her life for his. He goes home. She stays a prisoner in the castle as part of a ulterior plot from the castle's denizens to try and make him uh, fall in love. Eventually, he does. Her old not-boyfriend from town tries to come and kill the beast, and there's a dramatic conclusion wherein a noble mercifully doesn't murder a poor person. <laughs> okay, not the ending I was expecting, but I'll give it to you. With a good five seconds clearance, too. Yeah, but I was really fucking around at the start. <laughs> You, yeah, well, you went into it with a lot of confidence. Like, well, you, you clearly got a handle on this, but you, you, you found it a bit, didn't you? Yeah, well, you almost lost it. It's especially because I didn't, I don't care that much about a lot of the middle of this movie. So, like, you know, well, it's meant I'm, to go like, oh, well, they get married in the end, and that's the dramatic conclusion of this narrative. And I guess that's actually where it stops, but. Is it really important at that point? I would say the climax is more when they realize that they have learned to love one another and thereby broken the curse. Something which didn't come up in the summary. <laughs> really? You know. Wouldn't this movie be better if he remained cursed and hot? It wasn't my summary. But, well, yes, you, you'll find that that's one of my note cards right down the back end of this production. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's not the best face reveal. Let's mm -hmm. put it that way. Hey, Fox, have you seen this one before? I have seen this before. I've watched it a couple of times. Not a lot of times. 
because uh, I I saw it when it was current and I didn't really care about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm not a big fairy tales person, uh, and uh, you know I wondered if I I might feel differently about it on the rewatch. Um, but not really. I'm I'm just not that into this. As as a '90s kid and a girl and a Disney girl, I'm supposed to love this, but I still just don't connect to this one very well. Ah, I see, I see. Despite the fact that you were yourself a bookish girl from a small town who didn't want to just marry the first hunk who asked, I guess? Well, I was a fat bookish girl who was 164 centimetres tall and weighed about 110 kilos, so a hunk never asked. Yeah. There is that, isn't it? Isn't it weird the fact that Belle, like, pointedly, is hot? Yeah, it's kind of a central theme of the story, I guess. It wouldn't have worked without it. Yeah. It is interesting to me that as as an adaptation of the fairy tale, this one glosses over what was supposed to be Belle's main character trait, mm. which is like she's uh, innocent and doesn't ask anything of her father, while her sisters, who are notably omitted from this version, are greedy and, and well... I mean, greedy as represented by having desires at all, because this is a simplistic morality tale at its heart. It is a very different story to that one. It is a very different story, yes. Well, I'm not I'm not planning on hammering on it for that, but we've got some stuff to go on to there anyway. No, it's true. Anyway, uh, so what, what's your pre-existing relationship with this film? Had you seen it? Okay, so not only did I see it, I saw it in the cinemas. Wow, you saw it before I did then. I did. And what happened is that there were two friends of our family who, in the interest of giving my parents, I now realize, some time off, <laughs> uh, basically took us on a holiday for two weeks, me and my sister. Oh, how nice. Um, and they had dogs, and we went to their holiday house, and we went hiking and explored their backyard, and, you know, all sorts of just general low-key stuff, and we watched television programs like Milo and Otis, and... As a very special treat, they took us to go see Beauty and the Beast, something that was not on the cards at in, in the surroundings around uh, the church <laughs> I was in. Is this because a castle full of animated objects was demonic? Yeah, and also the general distrust of Disney producing media for kids ah. that they didn't have control over. Um, the focus on music as well. So this is like... Probably the first full Disney animated feature I watched. Uh, and I think I, I mean, at that point, I would have literally have been Chip's age. Hmm. That's interesting. How old is Chip in this? Like eight or so nine. I read him as being like five-ish. Uh, fair enough. Oh. We we return again to Talon Reed's little boys in, in media <laughs> older than Fox does. Uh. Not that we're going to split teacups over this. Yeah. But it did mean that I, I had a very weird sensation of thinking of like, oh, I'm, you know, Chip is like me. Um... And impersonating the line of, oh, you guys have got to try this, and stuff like that. <laughs> wow, he was your eye-level character. I guess he was. That's... I remember wow. I remember being very frustrated that no one answered his question. I that gets me a little bit, too. Like, man, fuck you, he's not that young. You can at least tell him that, like, there's a thing called romance, where grown-ups like each other. Yeah. Anyway, so, yeah, there you go. That is pretty interesting. Now, that said, despite having... Uh, not a non-existent relationship with this. I got basically nothing for the double take. Is there anything you noticed in this watch-through that you didn't notice at first? So Baudrillard introduces the idea of the simulacrum. <laughs> oh, Talon's been to university since he saw this movie. <laughs> and one of the things that I am keenly aware of with Beauty and the Beast, and with a whole host of Disney, is that they serve as a sort of scaffolding for a whole genre of internet content of... 
articles and podcasts like this one and YouTube series that are about looking back at these and dismantling them or pointing out plot holes or stuff like that. Very um, kind of backyardigans version of media studies. I'm not sure what that means, but I assume our listeners will. Hopefully. Um, <laughs> I hope the, I hope the Americans know what the backyardigans are. Um, but the point is that I have this experience in 1991 of watching the movie. And then I did not watch, think, or talk about that movie for 20 years. <laughs> yeah. And then the internet started producing videos that I could watch about, hey, haven't you noticed this interesting thing about Beauty and the Beast? Or, hey, how this scene in Kingdom Hearts explains this thing about Beauty and the Beast? Or fixing this oh plot hole in God, Beauty and the Beast? Oh, God, let us choke on it. And in so doing, this kind of resurgence in my mind of Beauty and the Beast as being, as it were, a story about Stockholm Syndrome. That is the meme. And that was the main thing that kind of lurked in my brain of like, yeah, I guess it is. Um, and the thing that I find really interesting about this is it is not because I read those articles and went, wow, they're right. And I went back and rewatched the show with that, rewatched the movie with that context. Instead, I went, ah, that must be right because I haven't bothered to check <laughs> and therefore never returning to the text, which means that then I, maybe sometimes offhandedly, because I don't think of myself as an expert, would glibly comment about Beauty and the Beast, and I was now replicating this replication without considering the original. So the image that people have of Beauty and the Beast as this really crap, dark story about, oh, women are objects and such and so forth, and, you know, it's about Stockholm Syndrome, a thing that doesn't fucking exist, um, that means that I was then part of this replication process and people who looked to me and went, well, Talon's not a fucking idiot. Maybe he knows what he's talking about when he uses that meme and so on and so forth. And so in the same way that going back and watching for the first time properly, uh, Little Mermaid and going, hey, wow, actually there's way more relationship here than I remembered. Uh, th this is like, this movie is much better than, uh, th than it needs to be for, well, the, the internet commentariat on this movie want this movie to be a lot more shittily put together than it actually is and then you have the live action movie which i've watched which responds to that commentariat so it's a very interesting thing to go back to the original text and go oh wow everyone involved in this is wrong and stupid <laughs> one of the reasons i can't fucking stand the disney live action remakes is that they do have just this incredibly pathetic way of treating the worst bad faith criticisms of the original films as if they are legitimate yeah like these so-called plot holes did not need addressing it's not a plot hole to just have not put something in the movie because it didn't matter we don't need the full biographies of everyone present to appreciate the work and and there is some dumb shit stuff in this movie sure there is there some is. stuff i would love for it to be different most of it is dumb cartoon logic, like, you know, why was it fair to punish a whole castle full of people for one selfish boy? Well, it wasn't. Next question. Yeah, we'll get, we'll get to that. <laughs> but, yeah, so my double take is mostly the movie this actually is, is actually a bit better than I remembered it, and the movie that would be fun to talk about and make fun of isn't there. Which is a kind of a bummer, because it would have been great if this movie had something <laughs> I could shit on. I'm interested that you're saying all of this, because that's not my experience with this movie's pop culture reputation. Like, it's cool to make fun of it by saying it's about Stockholm Syndrome, but broadly speaking, nobody really thinks that. Mm. Well, my experience of how this film is treated uh, 
as as a you know collective opinion is that this is a fucking masterpiece and for a yeah. lot of people they will call it the best disney animated film and it's always been my opinion that it is distinctly overrated in that regard yeah like it's fine it's not bad by any stretch. It's a shitload better than most of the stuff we watched in the so-called Golden Age. Yeah, but in every season prior to now, I can think of a movie that takes this one out back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know what it is? It, the movies I've actually liked from every previous season, I like way more than I like this. Yeah, and looking at the rest of this season coming up, I will happily say I can think of four better movies than this one. Well, I'm going to like the next four movies we watch better than this one. I know, because I was there at the time. <laughs> Like, if you ask me to do an ordered tier list, this one is probably going to sit somewhere around the same level as Return of Jafar for me. Oof! Oh, he put it in the sequel camp! Yeah. Oh! 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 Oh, he put it in the Dan Castle and added impersonating Robin Williams camp! Oh! Oh! <laughs> you, you okay? You okay? I'm just sorry, I'm recovering from that gut wound, but I think I heard something important. What was that? Why, that's the squeaking of the yikes door. Oh, the yikes door. This is the segment where we talk about things that are of their time in a way that makes us take a sharp intake of breath. Yeah. And, uh, and just hope that they've learned better since then. Made slightly worse in this case, because this is the 90s. We were alive. We were growing up in this. This helped shape our worldview. Oh, and this is well past the time of, like, everyone still thought this shit was okay. Like, this is definitively in the should-have-known-better yeah. uh, period of time. Though, that said, this is less, like, yikesy than a lot of, of what we're gonna watch, in including the next four movies that I like better than it, I've gotta say. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some stuff. So, shall I just run down the quick and obvious? Sure, go ahead. Uh, everyone here is super white, not... Setting appropriate, not time appropriate, even if it was, put some people of colour in your fucking movies, you monsters. I mean, you made a movie based on the idea of Belle being a bookish, uh, self-directed, at, at least basically more involved and, and having of more agency than any woman was deemed appropriate to have in this time period. So if you're going to tell me that that's okay, and you are, because people will not fucking shut up about what a great feminist Disney princess Belle is. Ugh. Ugh. <sighs> Ugh. But if you were going to do that, then you can put some fucking people of color in your movie. Yep. The whole cast has a total of four women characters who speak with their own voice. One of them is a dresser. One of them mostly giggles and flirts with Lumiere. One is Miss Potts and the last is Belle. Which means that, broadly speaking, you've got two characters who could hold a conversation and they are a mum and the love interest. Oh yeah, this movie wouldn't wouldn't pass a Bechdel. Yeah. Which, you know, limited cast by design, so I guess that's an aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying it would have been improved if we'd taken time out to develop a relationship between Belle and Mrs. Potts that worked independently of the beast i don't think we needed that but you're right it's not a, not a great movie to be a woman in yep uh the dude gets cross-dressed scene in the fight that's a very 90s thing <laughs> that was such a uh, i mean like i said i hate the remakes but at least that wouldn't happen now <laughs> i got some bad news for you they redid that fucking scene anyway so the thing is the, what 
one of the things about this type of scene, and this is a really common thing you'll see, especially in 90s cartoons, is that the people making these can recognize, hey, being forced to present a gender you're not is violent and traumatic. <laughs> and it's just like, okay, you get it. You you get it. So you're close. so close to getting it. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> the narrative is also ultimately about a French noble. Like, if Belle's a Disney princess... <laughs> Princess is a, a lowercase p. It doesn't really literally mean princess. Because if it did, it means that he's the king of France. Which, that's not a group of people that I would actually like to be backing as heroes. Well, hang on, no. He is explicitly a prince. Okay. Uh, but like Of like one castle in France? That's how castles work. Yeah. In France. You understand. Yeah. It's, this is the problem with declaring that it's set in France rather than just going, it's a handy, wavy fantasy kingdomy land like all the other fuck nah. i don't like it when people try and real world disney films mm -hmm. it's a bad plan and i do have more but i'm gonna save it for the grand thesis oh. when i talk about be our guest okay well i have one more which is just that the feather duster having feathers plucked out Ooh. by a delighted looking mob member towards the end is just like, clearly a sexual assault scene, and I'm uncomfortable with its existence. I yeah. don't think that should be there. Yeah, he even does the whole, uh, um, forgive the word, rapacious noise that you get in, in yeah, that kind of, like, like you know, I'm gonna get you kind of sounds. It's Ugh. not the damage being done to this duster is somehow sexual, it's the way that they present the character doing it, taking a joy in it, which is clearly of a different level to, I'm trying to fight off these possessed house implements. Yeah. It's nasty. And the fact that they have then Lumiere go in to do a save and be like, oh, no, I get some. With his flamethrower hair. Ugh. The animation and making of this movie. Right, a segment we've been calling Between the Lines, but is rapidly expanding beyond the lines to encompass things like cast and character design and general Disney tropes as they become part of the Disney Yep. One of the things with this movie is that there is an existing, very real, and very sad story about how this movie got made. And for anyone who's not reasonably familiar with it, uh, the narrative is about the lyricist and composer, Alan Menken, doing composing, and Howard Ashman, doing lyrics. Um, it, two of the key components of, I believe, The Little Mermaid, which were directly responsible for this hard pivot back to fairy tales and into full-on musicals for the first time in a long while yeah th these are these are the composer and lyricist for the songs from that um uh um musker and clements are the ones who are going like let's do fairy tales let's do musicals but these are the two who made it happen yeah and uh ashman died of aids six months before this movie actually launched he did get to see it but he didn't get to see it in theaters um the movie is actually dedicated to him if you caught that in the opening i didn't uh and it's no, sorry. It's in the credits. Uh, my bad. Well, our credits got interrupted because Disney Plus. Yeah, which is a bit of a shit move, Disney God Plus. Damn it. <laughs> um, it's your fucking credits. But the line is, uh, "To the man who gave our mermaid her voice, to the man who made the beast that could love, Ooh. Uh, we miss you." And yeah, uh, so this is this is an example of queer cinema and queer theater and queer art, which was you know destroyed by an actual literal plague. Um, and he was forty-one. Uh, so that's an existing narrative. Yeah, this is, this is an existing known story that goes on in the making of Beauty and the Beast. It's 
something you should probably get from a deeper source than us because we're also going to use the word fuck and make fart noises and whatnot. Like, hey. <laughs> we're going to goof around and this is a fun, goofy podcast sometimes. I ain't never made a fart noise on this podcast. <laughs> I'd save that for the game of shit. So I'd like to set that very sad, very serious element of this aside. And just try and talk about some other stuff about the making that doesn't normally get mentioned. I feel really bad now that I'm going to complain about not liking the songs in this very much. I'm level with you. I feel like the heel now. Well, that's the thing. I was doing that to tear off the band-aid because, wow, the songs are kind of shit, aren't uh, they? <laughs> I never liked them. <laughs> They're, I mean, it's a bummer because I love the Little Mermaid songs. I love basically every song that comes out of the next four or five Disney movies, and I lived their soundtracks for years of my life. I think it's the one that's up next that's the big one for me, but like the soundtrack of this one, completely forgettable schmaltz to me. It's just, yeah, I mean, a lot of it is that it's not nearly as singable mm-hmm. as as the, like, well, that's a key element for me, because like I said, I, I lived these soundtracks, and by that I mean... Every time I was out in the garage using the family computer, which was a thing you had in the 90s where there was only one computer in your household, uh, I would be listening to the tapes of these on loop. Mm. And I would be singing to them very loud. Uh, but but just not this one. They're not, I don't know, they're not songs that are for young up-and-coming women to sing for the most part. And it doesn't. And it does that annoying thing of like, ah, this is a person's thought process turning into a song, which, cowards, cowards! Have her sing it out loud. Oh, yeah, I guess it does a little bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I, I kind of forgive it in those songs because they are also time lapses. Yeah. Well, montages. Uh, so, you know, it contributes more to the feeling that they're actually spending some time together. And uh, that's extremely necessary in this movie, I think. Now, would you be surprised to know that this movie almost wasn't a musical? Yes. I, well, I mean, I guess no, because it would have been in production before The Little Mermaid hit and made everyone go, fuck me, musicals, quickly now! In fact, that's what happened. Yeah! Uh, This movie was in development for four years, and two years in, The Little Mermaid kicked everything's doors open, and they went, oh no! Shit. Oh no! (laughs) And they had to remake it in the time between the launch of The Little Mermaid Uh. in 1989 and the launch of this movie in 1991. Is that why the songs are kind of naff? Because they're an afterthought. For what's worth, I wouldn't go that far. I think that, like, there were definitely pressures on it, like the fact that the, uh, the, the Ashman was in London mm-hmm. recording, and this is the 90s, so when they wanted to re- send a recording over the pond, they had to do it by, by putting a, a reel of tape on a plane, um, to get the quality they wanted. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, like, that definitely was a factor. But I don't, I don't think it was necessarily that they, I don't think that this was treated as an afterthought. The main place that that crunch hit them was in the production and animation front. Especially because they were getting up to speed with this system that we talked about last time in The Rescuers Down Under in between all the shouting about colonialism. <laughs> right, this was our brand new digital ink and paint era, wasn't it? Yes, this is what the Pixar team developed, a type of software that they called C-A-P-S, CAPS, which is Computer Animation Processing System. And this introduced a new technique where you could create an entirely transparent frame that you could draw in. As far as I can tell, this is the earliest reference to layers I've seen in any conversation about this. Yeah. That seems wrong. 1991 Pixar State-of-the-Art Software making animation layers a thing. Hmm. Well, okay. 
making animation layers a thing in digital, in animation software. Like, yeah. I mean, they, animation had happened in layers since forever. I'm not sure if earlier programs called them layers. No, no, I mean physically. Oh, yes, Layering. obviously. Like, yeah, 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 physical okay. sketchbooks. Yeah, okay, yep, yep. They, may have, they may have added it to software for animating mm-hmm. for the first time, but they did not add it to animation. <laughs> no, 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 my bad, my it bad. It was a necessary building, founding block uh-huh. of animation. Uh, and that meant that there's a lot of stuff where the animators and artists were under pressure, so a lot of corners got cut. This movie is 50% preposterous flexes and 50%... <laughs> amazing hacks i can sort of tell um there's a whole bunch of sequences where the animation of beast's face is positively looney tunish uh like i kind of felt that was deliberate like yeah he's just he's a larger than life character lots of vivid expressiveness and they they talked about this being very careful to make sure he was super expressive because they needed him to be lovable for the audience not like diegetically he needed to be lovable but also capitalistically he needed to be lovable yep uh and that meant that for example uh the entire opening minute is just background art it's just hey what can we get the background arts to to generate (laughs) without us having to do any animation cells at all uh, because the cells were now being generated, because the images were now being generated digitally and they could be slid around like that, that meant that there are lots of times where if you see what looks like two backgrounds, pan and scanning and very little animation, like, yes, on a technical level, that's very impressive, but that's a corner cut. Uh, we also have the reverse effect where we have a number of, uh, well, I mean, <laughs> mostly it's been my guess. Yeah. But the background drops out to shit when yep. the, the foreground animation gets musical stage production levels of complex. Yep. And also, did you catch that there's there's at least one, I didn't catch the others, but there's at least one completely, we just traced over what we already had drawn piece of animation in this meeting. What is that? I missed that. Belle and the Beast's dance at the end is a straight copy of the Sleeping Beauty Prince dance. Really? Uh-huh. Huh. I had not noticed that. Doesn't it do panning around them that would make that impossible? No, 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 no. The one at the end. Yeah? When they're both human. Yeah? No panning in that? Not by my memory from uh, a few minutes ago. To think people shout all over Robin Hood for that. Oh, yeah, it's this ridiculous. This is the best Disney movie ever. Yeah. And, of course, it's got the big dolly shot, which is, you know, that's impressive. No lies. It's very impressive. And that's what's generally talked about as being the first integration of CGI into Disney, which we know from watching things like Great Mouse Detective. Yeah. And Oliver and Company is bullshit. Yep. But, uh, I, I don't know, that was the narrative for a long time, I guess. Well, this is the one they'd like people to look at and think of as being their first time, I suppose. <laughs> by the way, by the way, that note about the backgrounds in uh, Be Our Guest, I want you and the listeners all to put a pin in that, because we're going to see that become a recurring stereotype of song number in the future. That's a secret technique that'll come in handy later. It will. Thank you, Mickey. Now, Get back behind the gate of time or wherever it is you're trapped. (laughs) It's the gateway to Kingdom Hearts and he doesn't have a shirt. Oh, I'm sorry. That's my fault for not giving a fuck. (laughs) That said. Just not not, not that said. That's my fault for not giving a fuck. Moving on. We're going to talk voice cast. Voice cast. Okay. Yeah. So there is some big, obvious, really blatant stuff. Um, And I'm not even going to bother talking about Paige O'Hara being Belle or anything to do with Beast or Gaston. If you didn't already know this, Gaston has done like four 
non-theater roles. He is a theater performer, and he is apparently fantastically good at it. So, <laughs> duh! I was expecting him to be a Broadway guy or something. But, uh, okay, before we, before we get in, let me guess, because I want to bring this up first. Is this our first David Ogden Steers sighting? Yes! Yeah! It's a first sighting of two very important figures for future Disney. And who's the other one? Well, it could only possibly be Tony J, right? Yes. My god, that's a voice. Actually, that should have been my double take. Because I did not know who Tony J was the first time I saw this. And now I cannot forget Tony J's voice. Yep. Uh, Tony J plays the... Uh, Asylum. Uh, yeah, I don't know what to call manager, him. Manager, administrator. Yeah, he has a name. He's in the credits. I just uh. <laughs> he probably does. Um, but yeah, that got, that is the first. Technically speaking, the first thing he, the earliest movie he worked on for Disney is that he's in the dub Disney did of Nashka. But that didn't happen oh. until after this movie. So. It's just that Naushka is an earlier movie than this one. Like, Naushka oh. came out in Japan earlier. Yeah, okay, but the Disney dub is not that old. Yeah, it's, it's one of those... We're not, this is not the original horrible dub. This is the dub Disney got to do after they did Mononoke and proved they weren't going to throw it on the floor. I understand that to be the case. The yeah. 2006 dub. It, it's yeah. very much checking the serial numbers. So if you want to go back and, and at me on technicalities and go, well, actually, he worked on uh, a previous thing for Disney. It's like, that doesn't count. No, that and was also, way the fuck later. Yeah. Um, Tony James primarily... Uh, in South African film before this point. Oh, I did not know that. This is one of his first in America roles, and funnily enough, he stays here. We have the return of friend of the show, Frank Welker. Ooh, who was Frank Welker in this? Animal Voices again? Yep. Uh, he's Footstool. Yep. Uh, he's Philippe? No, he's just- He's not Philippe. Um, he's not- Weirdly, he's not Philippe. Uh, Philippe had his own actor and his own animation team. Oh, that's nice. Uh, Frank Welker being the dog. The dog's name, by the way, is Sultan. The dog has a name. Yep. Well, there you go. Slightly racist. David Ogden Steers as Cogsworth. Angela Lansbury, Murder, She Wrote, as Mrs. Potts. And I did not realize this, but Lumiere Mm -hmm. is Jerry Orbach. That's right. Who I primarily know as the old growly detective dude from Law and Order when I was a kid. And I knew that, but somehow I'd forgotten it, which is a weird thing to forget. Mm-hmm. Dang. Now, I knew I told you at the start of this, before the recording, in the black, woo, that there were some voices I wanted to point out. And, okay, Tony J's the obvious one. Uh, I want to ask you about one if I can. Yeah? Uh, you said you weren't going to talk about the Beast voice, but I don't know who the Beast was voiced by, so I'd like you to tell me about him. And specifically, did he have a different singing voice? Because that sounded like a different person. Uh, that's Robbie Benson, and... Wait, isn't that, isn't he from Take That? That's a different Robbie. That's Robbie Williams. Yes. And that is his singing voice. Okay. Just one of those people who sounds different when he sings, I guess. Yeah. And he was indeed called upon to uh, uh, basically play with a lot of range. Oh, yeah. Obviously, you need this character to go from terrifying to sweetie pie. Yeah. Um, And yeah, it just so happens that he happens to have that kind of range. (laughs) The decent day. Now, if I had to ask you the least character characters in this so philippe i'd say philippe is ahead of these ones the bimbets oh yes Uh uh-huh okay so there are two voice actresses for the bimbets not three only two yes i just figured there'd be three because they sing together yeah but it's it's two women (laughs) who do that um who you may recognize they are mary Kay bergman and kath susie of course they 
fucking are. Yeah. <laughs> we need to get some skinny blonde girl singers in here. We have two women who can do every voice under the sun. Thanks, ladies. Yeah, uh, and for those of you who aren't aware, because Fox is a giant nerd for this stuff, Cat Susie <laughs> is, amongst other things, the voice of Lola Bunny. Cat Susie is every Warner Brothers voice you've ever enjoyed uh, <laughs> put on a female character. Uh-huh. And uh, Mary Kay Bergman is every non-Warner Brothers woman's voice you've ever appreciated. It's... Don't don't sell Cree Summer short. <laughs> yeah, okay. The point is they are two veteran voice actors who have voiced everyone under the fucking sun. And like every... No, you know what it is? Every incidental female voice you've heard. Yep. There's like a... Fitty fitty chance it's one of these two. Yeah, Mary Kay Bergman passed away in 1999, so that has obviously diminished her career, uh, her availability for this kind of stuff, but that hasn't stopped her from racking up an enormous number of roles because she was literally every woman in South Park. Yep. And Kath Susie, who has just been quietly working away at so many different things, is also Linka from The Planeteers. I actually thought she'd passed away, like, last year. No, that was, um... Right, and, uh, I, I don't know if Cat Susie shows up in another Disney. Probably. Oh, she definitely almost certainly know, will. I definitely know Mary Kay Bergman is coming back. Yeah. Uh, and, and not far in the future either. Yeah. And, you know, good for them. Uh, big fan of their work. Yeah. Big fan of Tony Jay's work. Big fan of David Ogden Steers, who was Winchester yes. from... True. I, I did not realise it, but I was a big fan of David Ogden Steers in the 90s. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, like, I knew him from these late Disney films, and I did not realize that he'd also been on, like, what is it, four or five years of MASH? Something like that. The second half, basically. Yeah. The the better half. <laughs> is that a bit rough? Anyway, whatever. Uh, any other voices of note you wanted to tell me about? Honestly, no, because otherwise it's just, like, yep, people we know of, or people <laughs> who are amazing in this particular role. Like, Gaston's voice actor has not done a lot of other stuff in animation, because he needs a theatre to contain him. <laughs> theatre cannot contain him. <laughs> uh, well then, if we're done with voices, I'd like to talk a few character designs. All right. This is this is where it gets into the nuts and bolts of it, isn't it? <laughs> I don't have that many notes for this movie. Uh, and most of them are sort of like just notes on the, the evolving Disney archetypes going forward. Like, for example... Uh, in the Little Mermaid episode, I talked about how Disney dads were mostly small, round, and ineffectual. Yeah. This is extremely the start of that. Like, yep. Triton was obviously too threatening for a Disney dad, because from now until at least Pocahontas, we're going to have Spheres as our dads for a while. Yep. <laughs> uh, not that there's anything wrong with Maurice, it's just a, a, a quick 90 degree turn. It is interesting as well when you start talking about character design. Like, there's definitely a lot of stuff that's being done for the sake of fun. Like, the way that the implements of the house act and behave with one another. But it gets really gross when you're anthropomorphizing them. And it's like, this beer is passing <laughs> beer to another beer stein. And it's our mouths. Honestly, I kind of like that. Like, yes, it's disgusting. But that sort of makes it intriguing in a way. Like, yeah. also the, the wardrobe, uh, you know, getting embarrassed when she has bugs living inside her guts. And yeah. Like, ooh, uh, that's a, I don't want to think too hard about the metaphor of, of what you just showed. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's a lot of stuff where there's very clearly being used to convey metaphor, but also there's points where you're not meant to think of it as metaphor. It's just, hey, wouldn't it be fun if your items could do this? Um, but it doesn't change the fact that there is a point where you're meant to clean your wounds with something that came out of Mrs. Potts' nose. 
<laughs> the way it's healing fluid. This is where Steven Universe got it from. Yeah, moving on. Um, we have at long last another noteworthy Disney horse. You may remember our previous friend from Sleeping Beauty. Mm-hmm. A very smart horse, if we've ever met one. A great dog. And now we have met Philippe, who is a very great dog. Yeah. He's a big, strong, cuddly, straw-haired dog horse. Yeah, and he's a draft horse as well. And uh, just so you know, uh, during the watching this movie, I did have the moment where I was like, hang on, can you ride draft horses? Because I had been led astray by my Christian <laughs> upbringing and thinking, oh no, you never ride a draft horse. They're too strong. They'll break your bones. <laughs> Turns out that no, that's a load of shit. Um, draft horses are perfectly good to ride. And indeed, in many cases, better to ride than other kinds of starting horses. Yeah, no, but they're very strong. And that's why they're not like particularly likely to hurt you or be too bothered by anything. Have you ever met a golden retriever? (laughs) I I realize I'm now self-parodying by likening a horse to a dog. But the point is, if you have a big, sturdy animal that knows it does not have much to fear from other things, they tend to have big, sturdy temperaments to go with it. All right, that's rad. What else we got in the way of the character design stuff? Uh, Aside from just like an asterisk next to the prince's face saying improve later. Well, that's what we're up to, yes. (laughs) I... One thing I do remember from the first viewing of this is being just so disappointed by that face reveal, man. Yeah. Oh, he... Mmm. Mmm. I mean, it's distinctive. He's not a generic prince, I'll give him that. But, kind of you kind of want a Shrek ending on this, right? You sort of wish it had gone the other way around. Eh. <laughs> Look, he's not my type, so I have a hard time passing a strong opinion. I can see an appeal to both, but also... I can definitely understand why people were disappointed. <laughs> he he has what I like to call the Edward Elric problem, which is that, like, yes, it may be the ultimate goal of the story to undo the specific visual quirks that everybody loves about this character, but you, as a character designer, know that this is what everybody loves about this character, so you know that it's not a good fucking idea to undo that stuff. Yeah. So if you're gonna do it, it better only be at the very end of the story, and, like, there's a reason they made, like, four midquels to this movie and no sequel. <laughs> <laughs> Who would know? Anyway, I do think it would have been a better story if he'd stayed a beast, to be honest. Like, you know, the, the curse is broken. He doesn't have to die. But, like, the point is he learned to love and be loved in this form, so he, he doesn't need to go back to the worst version of himself. I think it would be cool. And also because I suspect that that on some level this movie is for monster fuckers what Robin Hood was for furries, right? Like, yeah, it seems very likely, yes. <laughs> this, is, this is just Shape of Water for tweens. Yeah, and and to be fair, I can see a fun narrative, well not fun, but I can see like a really rewarding narrative where the whole point is he goes like, hang on, the problem here is that my behavior has trapped everyone else here regardless of my learning to love and i will take the curse onto myself and free everyone else because they don't deserve to be stuck in this hell for my fucking up but again that brings me back to my grand thesis point and we'll get there when we get there (laughs) (laughs) okay okay anyway the point is i'm glad we didn't have to live with looking at this guy's face too much he's also animated very awkwardly like, I mean, okay, it's hard to do a mouth, an on-mouth kiss in animation. We've dealt with this before as well. And they were really proud of it this time. And like this, we are now in the Disney era of 
every character has their own animation team. Yeah. And in a lot of cases, there's not a lot of cross-pollination. Uh, well, specifically, this is the point where they started saying, all right, these two characters need to kiss. You two teams have these <laughs> weeks to get that shit done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this will this will extremely come up again in future movies. But um, yeah, I don't know. Well, it's, it's a bit sad to learn they were so proud of it because it looks awkward as fuck to me. I think that it looks better than every single time they've tried it beforehand. <laughs> I thought it looked better in Little Nut. But there's just... The the sharpness they chose to add to Prince Adams. Canonically, he's Prince Adam, by the way. So, Belle's gonna protect Eternia? I like this headcanon! <laughs> well, that's how it works in fiction. If two characters have a similar name, that means it's absolutely <laughs> I, uh, the same story. I understand that's deliberate, yes. That means they're <laughs> part of the same multiverse now. Yeah. <laughs> which I guess means She-Ra and Katra get to come into this world now. Anyway, uh, it's... A lot of it is design, but it also looked very awkward to me in that the lines on his face did not fall in the right places, and it just made the whole thing look very uncomfortable. And I feel like if they'd worked on this this version of the character uh, as much as the Beast, if they'd gotten to know that appearance of him as well as they knew the other character they were working on, you would not have had that awkward. But that's just my, my take on it. We're done with character design. Uh, unless I want to make fun of Belle for just being Ariel again, I guess. Wait, no, I already did that. Yeah, and, like, yeah. I feel very conflicted about this because I love that we started seeing the heroines look a bit fucking different going forward from here. But it's only because they're not white for the next, like, five movies. So, <laughs> uh, win some, you lose some, I guess. We'll talk about that when we get to them. Did you did you feel that this is the most extensive soundtracking we've had in one of these films yet? Like, I noticed the score so much more in this than in any of the previous ones. I didn't rightly notice, I'm afraid. Okay. I mean, I could be imagining it, or maybe it's just because the, the score was more sort of operatic this time. Um, but I felt like it was just way more prominent. There were so many more dramatic music moments and, and stuff than I'm used to, especially after having cannonballed so many of these old ones in a row. Where they're surprisingly silent a lot of them. Yeah. Well, I mean, also, you did just ask a complete thicker. Like, <laughs> I'm not I'm not good when it comes to music and soundtracks in general. That's not true. I asked you a question about a facet of movies which is often regarded as being invisible when it's done right. That's fair. It makes sense that you wouldn't have noticed that if you weren't looking for it. Really? Come on. Come on. Anyway, there was nary a silent moment in this, which was of interest to me. Yeah, isn't it? Uh, and our last note, which is a, a distinctly less positive one, is uh, this This came with our first horrible pop radio remix. It did! These, oh, these were such an awful part of the Disney renaissance. Like, I love almost everything that came out of Disney in this era, but the credits version of the song, which was always some kind of horrible R&B remix of, of the prettiest, most singable song from the movie. And, uh... To my astonishment, when you looked it up, <laughs> I found out that this one was Celine fucking Dion. Uh-huh. I never knew that. Oh. Which means that she had <sighs> a nomination for Best Original Movie Song at oh. the start and the end of the 90s. The radio version of this shit? Yep. Oh, my God. I mean, I don't love the version that was in the movie. Getting Angela Lansbury to do this while doing her grandma voice was not the best choice for your main theme. Mm -hmm. But I like it better than I like R&B Celine Dion in 1991. The the whole nature of... of the, the funny thing is, Angela Lansbury came up through musicals. 
Angela Lansbury's got pipes. Yeah, that's the thing. I'm pretty <laughs> sure she can sing better than she sang in this, but also she was doing Mrs. Potts singing yep. this song, and Mrs. Potts can't sing that well, clearly. Mm-hmm. Oh, anyway, that was fucking rough. We did see the version that had the original theatrical presentation, which means we did not get the IMAX extra song. Oh, yeah, thank God. But I've seen that, and it's not good. I just want you to know, that song was meant to be there. I know. There, look, there's a lot of shit that's meant to be in movies when they are first conceived. Uh, you know, the DVD extras, deleted scenes. But I don't know if this is a fucking hot take or whatever, but the deleted scenes are normally deleted for a good reason, and they do not need to be brought back. I don't care if you want to re-release a special edition or what the fuck ever. We did not need Morning Report. <laughs> ah! Man! It, it is an interesting thing to think about what those songs being cut means. <sighs> because those songs are inevitably... And now the plot putters around for a bit. Yeah. Like, they're usually gone because they weren't interesting and they didn't improve the movie. But, uh, you know what? We can put them back in and you'll feel like you're getting something special you missed out on the first time when you fucking loved this movie. Ah, uh, whatever. Did they put human again? I don't remember. I didn't watch that far. Yeah, I, I... got I got around that point. I know I've seen the end, but it's also just, like static in my brain it's, it's an incredibly forgettable movie the ways it's remarkable are only in the ways that it does a bad job of rudimentary film i don't find it i had the rare experience of stopping watching a movie before it was done which i've only done like three or four times in my fucking life uh-huh. but this movie made me so angry even though i didn't like the original that much it's just so clunky I want you to consider that you watched 90 minutes of Batman v Superman with me and you watched seven minutes of Beauty and the Beast. Hey, no, I watched up until the fucking Gaston song. That's more than seven minutes, surely. It felt like an hour. I have some bad news. No, um, <laughs> no, you're right. It's more like 17 minutes, but like you time really- Time has lost all meaning. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, uh, time to move out of production. I had more bitching to do than I thought. Sorry. All right, and now strap on your goggles because we're doing a rocket sled rip-roaring run through a grand thesis. Woo! Which is, Be Our Guest Loves Kings. Fuck Be Our Guest. <laughs> ah, yes, Be Our Guest, the anthem to subservience. Be Our Guest is a song that paints the idea of a servant class that actually literally lives to serve when left to their own devices they do nothing that is say fun or interesting or engaging they are literal organs of the master's house the scale is also monstrous if as depicted in the be our guest scene the knives and forks tablespoons uh, uh flatware all of that stuff if those are all the transformed humans that used to work in this castle. And I'm not saying everything in the castle has to be this way. This isn't going to go, well, what about the toilets? No, I mean, no, but we assume everything that's animated has a person in it. That's pretty well established. Yes, and what gets animated is tied to what it did. The feather dusters were maids. Yeah. Okay, then this guy had over a thousand kitchen staff. Fuck this guy. I mean, he is royalty. That's, that's You might expect something a bit like that. A thousand kitchen stuff that is still a lot yes that is that is a village kitchen stuff that is a small town of kitchen stuff well if you think about it that's probably also all their children and stuff as well because like all the teacups are mrs potts kids right yeah why is she grandma age when they're all like preschool age i think the answer to your question is shut up yeah 
the, oh, I guess she was just getting on late in life. And there is not a lot. And, and this is, this is on one level, this is that overthinking at Hamlet's and Hamlet's and Hanglider's kind of bullshit. And I'm not here for that. What I am really here for is to point out that the, the delight and the whimsy that this derives from the older singing pots and pans is all explicitly in text expressed as because these are people who live to be subservient to a master who not only gives them nothing, but has abused and trapped them. If I do believe there are any actual potholes in this movie, it it would be the question of why the staff like. Yeah. Like, he seems... It seems like he has never been anything but a piece of shit to them. Mm -hmm. And like, (laughs) if anyone in this movie has Stockholm Syndrome, it's actually them. Well, it reminds me a lot of, uh, in the enduring debate about black confederates, and by debate I mean stupid people lying about shit, uh, (laughs) where you will find these letters from white confederates going, oh no, my slaves liked me a great deal. Sure, They fucking didn't, man. Ask them. And that's where the problem rises up, in that this movie is painted from the perspective of the Beast, who, even when he is being shitty, is like, well, of course my servants would stand by me and want to help me and be happy for me in ways like this. Like, I, they, they wouldn't fuck around. They wouldn't come up with games or have fun or get hobbies or read the books. They would just wait. They would just become objects in this house and wait. But they wouldn't... You know, just, like, leave and try and do anything with themselves. Like, from what we can tell, there's no reason they couldn't. Yeah. So, obviously, well, I mean, from which you infer that they feel like staying here and trying to get him hooked up is their only chance of getting out of here. How do they not resent him for that? And also, why don't they go looking for girls? Yeah, that's probably a good idea. We know from Chip that they can leave. Yeah, they can't. Yeah, I forgot about that. I was going to be like, well, it's ambiguous whether they can leave or not, I guess. But yeah, Chip leaves. And there is a carriage. And there is a hat stand with a hat and a coat that could very easily sit in the carriage and go, oh, yes, I'm here to distribute these gold coins to all the young ladies who want to go check out this one hot monster dude. How many? How hard would it be to find a monster fucker in Sooner France? Sooner or later, you're gonna hit a monster fucker. Like, just someone who's that curious. Like, I think that's the real reason Belle sort of... St- like, she flips to curiosity from terror and despair so quickly. And, like, that's gotta be because she's kind of interested in the whole, like, okay, this is some weird shit, but I'm supposed to like weird shit. Yeah, th- it is one of the nice things about making her father from a a merchant to an inventor. If he's, like, curious about making and, to- and toying with stuff, and she's curious about making and toying with stuff, like, that's not a genetic thing. That she's been raised around someone who's like, well, let's see if it works. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's why she's a weird book nerd, too, mm-hmm. supposedly. Even though she mostly seems to read fairy tales. But, well, <sighs> but nonetheless. <laughs> I hate that aspect of it. <laughs> Be Our Guest is a totemic representation of the idea that servants love their masters, which is something that would be written by masters. And it would be so fucking easy to fix, frankly. Like, you could... The movie wants you to gloss over that, because it's presented as delight. But the movie also wants you to gloss over the idea that they're servants at all, right? Like, yeah. it's... This was a very uncomplicated time in terms of monarchy worship, uh, uh, particularly in America. Like, monarchies are cool and magical. Yeah. That's just how shit is, especially in Disney. And, like, if they just hadn't use some of the language they do like they they literally say they live to serve yeah 
They, uh, what is it, life so disconcerting? For a servant servant who's who's not not serving. serving. He also refers to the idea of being left to their own devices, as in not having work imposed upon them. They just lie around the castle. As uh, we were flabby, fat, and lazy. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, no, you're fucking not. You're a candle. And he uh, he also presents this from another angle, which is just that we have these specialized skills, and it's super frustrating not to get to use them. Well, that's fine. Yeah. That's super relatable. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you just lean that angle rather than the other angle, which I... is like, this is my purpose in life, and I have no existence outside of it. And what's more... Why the fuck are you trying to convince her this? She's working class. She's one step above peasantry at this point. And yet he's still like, oh, no, no, it's okay. We, we love serving people, which is also one of those lies. It's like if it's, it, it, the whole reason the master gets to command the house is because the master has power. Yeah, I, 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 sorry, I promised rocket sled version. You're hearing it. I'm mad. This sucks. <laughs> Lumiere sucks and Cogsworth's a cop. I found myself really hating this fucking clock on this view through. Like, yeah. I never liked him. His, he's there to be a stick in the mud, sure, but I just... He's such a little fucking snitch. Yeah. Ugh. He's not Jiminy Cricket bad, but he's bad. No, well, he's, he doesn't moralize at anyone. He just... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's a cop. Yep. He, he would rat you out. But there you go. There's my grand thesis. Yep. Uh, let me see. Do I have a grand thesis? Um, Belle is barely adequate as the quote-unquote feminist Disney princess. She is the barest acknowledgement that princess probes are kind of problematic, and how about if we just do everything we normally do for them, but we also say she likes books. That's okay, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's okay. Like, she doesn't suck or anything. She's not a weak character. There's nothing wrong with her. It's charming that she will fight with the beast mm-hmm. uh, when she gets jack of his shit. Uh, there is the frustration of the mismatch between the line, I want much more than this provincial life, and what she seems to mean is, I want true love and control over this province as its princess. <laughs> now, okay, there's no indication that she wants that. Yeah, but like, that's what she settles for. Like, the whole the whole start of it is like, hey, I want more than I've got, and that's valid. Like, wanting more than you've got is totally a valid thing. I don't have a problem with that. It's just, she moves next door. <laughs> into a place with a bigger library. And that's kind of it. Well, okay. The only thing she said she wanted definitively was that she wanted an interesting life. She wanted adventure. By moving next door. She wanted someone who would understand that she didn't want a basic bitch village life. And she did get that. Yeah. Like, she completely fulfilled those aims. She didn't say, I want to go far away. She She specified adventure. Yeah, I you could I think she got that. She got magic mirrors and nearly getting her boyfriend killed. That's adventure. It, it's still a weak thing. What she's saying is, I want one exciting week. <laughs> eh, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, living in an enchanted castle would be exciting, monarchy or not. Mm-hmm. So I I agree. She's really vague, but I mean, I guess that's better than the previous Disney princesses who were all just I want a prince. And, and let me say... But I'm, not as good as Ariel, who was, I want to be a human because I'm a massive fucking human nerd. Mm-hmm. She I, actually wanted something meaningful. And let me just be clear, I'm not saying that it's a plot hole. I'm just saying, like, there's a mismatch there. It's not a plot hole, yeah. It's just a... They didn't quite follow through on that. Uh-huh. Baby steps. And also, greatest movie of all time, so why the fuck am I bothering to be nice to this? <laughs> I don't 
think the thematic through line is all that. Mm-hmm. Starting with the ugly old woman is in fact a beautiful enchantress. And going all the way through to once you learn to be a good person, you'll get to be beautiful again. Yeah, not cool. Like, it's it's a bit of a fail, and that's why I do wish it was, like, just self-aware enough to have a Shrek ending instead. Um, but, you know, it's also not remotely as bad as the <laughs> Disney is so ridiculous crowd would have you believe either. Yeah, sure. Does this mean we are descending rapidly into the magical world that we call Whateverland? Oh, that's good to know. I enjoy the energy from the beginning of this, which has this sort of fairy tales a back bitch kind of flavor to it with a really ominous sound. Like we have our magical Disney castle establishing scene, but the music is like, shit's fucked up, okay? That's enjoyable. This movie may have the genre of fairy tale, but Beauty and the Beast isn't literally a fairy tale. It it was a play um, before any of this stuff, before there were theaters. And it was by Jean-Marie Le Prince de Beaumont, and she gets no credit, except in the French dub. Wait, Jean-Marie a girl? Yeah, Jean-Marie Le Prince de Beaumont. Okay, I I thought the author was a man. Uh, she was married to a time to the famous spy, Tom Pynchon. And you're like, who? <laughs> Those two names don't match. That's wild. Yep. Fascinating. Uh, I want to meet the person who became that carriage. I just like that carriage's design. It's like a weird stumpy monster thing. I guess it's just a horse, probably, but I don't know. I liked it. This small town, for a small town, has a lot of industry and turnover. <laughs> uh, it's also big. It like Physically, it has like a square and multiple rows of houses building out around it. Uh, there are lots of signifiers of a small town in the, the way people talk about it. Like they, they push sheep through the town square, which, you know, that's a small town thing, all right. But <laughs> the sheer variety and scope of people and the jobs they're doing actually makes it look like, no, this place is probably like a mid-sized to large town. I mean, they have a bookstore in rural France. Yeah, in a place and time where people largely don't read. Right, uh, they like they make fun of women reading, so that's like half the population being a definite no to start yeah. with. And you get enough business to keep. Maybe that's why he gives her the book. He's like, whatever, I don't make it. Personal collection is just for fun. Yeah, I'm I'm a landlord. <laughs> that might also be why he lets her borrow books instead of paying for them too, because that's not a bookstore. Then that's a library. Anyway, feels like she's the only fucking person who goes there. Uh, I don't love any song in this movie, but. I do love the line, I'm especially good at expectorating. <laughs> That's fucking magical. I I don't like these songs, but I love listening to people sing them. I have strong <laughs> memories of Spike Vegeta singing Gaston at a GDQ along with someone else. Like I can't remember who was doing the Gaston part. No, yeah, but he, he did, he did Le Fou. Yeah. Le Fou? And Le Fou. that guy. Le Fou. But, like, yeah, that that's fun. That is a fun, fun. theatre kid shows off song. Sure is. The absolutely gleeful evil of Tony J's evil asylum just keeper. just comes out of nowhere, like, oh, I guess this is, I guess this is the unquestionably demonic asylum keeper. But also, that's probably period appropriate, right? Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Asylums are barely a tolerable concept as they are now and in any kind of medieval France, I think they're just a hard no. Yeah, they're so. essentially a kind of torture chamber at this yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, it sort of fits. Um, I don't know if you noticed, but belt sleeves are of, of curiously adjustable. <laughs> no, I didn't notice. 
sometimes they're three quarter and sometimes they're up to the elbow and like it's not like you couldn't pull them up and have them sit there uh but they do like just switch back and forth from cut to cut uh, from shot to shot so yeah <laughs> I, I think it was just an inco- like i'm not like this is a damn consistency worst movie ever <laughs> can't even keep the sleeve length straight of their main character <laughs> i sure hope somebody got fired for that one exactly <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, don't don't get me wrong and think that I want this addressed in in your fucking YouTube response video caliber of a live action remake. Uh, I just found it funny. Uh, Lafu's name literally means the fool. He's named after a tarot card. <laughs> Wish they'd extended that theme into a bunch of the other characters. <laughs> That'd have been fun times. His parents call <laughs> an asshole. Oof, man. <laughs> Maybe it's just a nickname. I bet Gaston would give someone a nickname. Yeah. Um, I. I'm I'm not into the beast as a love interest, especially. He's he's kind of charming, um, despite that I'm not exactly on the other side of monster fuckery either. I am not super into him. But the one scene I find really adorable in this is where he's trying to lick his arm after it's wounded. Yeah. <laughs> no, stop it. <laughs> That's too fucking cute. <laughs> I guess it just comes down to me liking dogs again, doesn't it? But. There's a lot of stuff done with body language and the way people interact with their bodies that speaks to me of disabled people, especially people who become disabled. So the beast struggling to eat politely um, yeah, in yeah. company, that actually makes me feel super uncomfortable because it, it reminds me of, of the stories I've heard from people who like, you know, yeah, I've been paralyzed in one side and now feeding myself is a real horror show and I don't like letting people see me eat. Um... And, like, he hasn't had to entertain, so he's been able to eat out of a trough, effectively, for ten years. And this is his first attempt to to use this face he has with these arms and these spoons. And, like, it, it's very... It feels like a movie that was trying to make me care about this in that way could do something deeply affecting with I I kind of thought that it was, because I had that thought as well. I haven't heard people talk about it, but it did make me think in that moment of like, uh, uh, yeah, right, that it would be kind of like that if you suddenly lost control of a part of your body that you were used to yeah. to controlling fully. And the fact that Belle meets him halfway on that is actually one of my favorite bits of this. I yeah. think that was really fucking decent. It wasn't just like, he needs to turn back. He needs to get better at humaning. It becomes something that she can reach out to him on as well, but not beyond reason. Yeah. That's, uh, it was handled with unexpected sensitivity, I guess. Uh, which means I am down to my last note, which is just, I, I don't like Gaston as a villain very much. He has a fun villain song, but he is like so cartoonishly fucking thick (laughs) about like, the way he taunts the beast at the end with like, why would she want you when she has me? Even though he knows that she doesn't like him. Like, he has accepted this by now. That's why he had his villainous break. What? Sorry, you just made me realize something. It's Maiden Butler dialogue. Gaston is doing Maiden Butler dialogue while he's fighting the beast. <laughs> I don't understand. So Maiden Butler dialogue is a thing that starts in theatre uh, and has been carried over into badly made films and books where uh, what would commonly happen in types of theatre about period dramas or upstairs downstairs dramas is at the start of a scene or a major point of the plot, two characters, one playing the maid and one playing the butler, would stand in a stage and the butler would take a step forward and say, 
as you know, as if he's talking to the maid, but like projecting straight out into the crowd, these are the details of the, of the events around the house. Step back. And the maid steps forward and goes, oh, well, that's a very good thing because this, da, 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 da. step back. He steps forward. It's this very deliberate, very arch. We are now going to tell you the themes of the story as if we are characters inside <laughs> uh, that story. Yes. And that's literally what Gaston is doing. You're like, haha, ha, Belle is really quite superficial because I think that she is and she has me as her option. But why would she choose you? You are ugly. Ha ha ha. Yeah, like he's voicing the beast's insecurities at that point. Yeah. But there's no reason that they would also be his beliefs by that stage of the movie yeah and if he still honestly thinks that then why is he so head up about the beast in the first place if he really thinks bell was ever into him which he clearly doesn't like ah, <laughs> it's a bit annoying but i i bring this up because the one thing i do really like about him is i like the look in his eyes when he realizes that he has entered the finding out stage <laughs> of this scenario <laughs> like his suit like bell comes back and the beast is like hang on a fucking minute and then you know stops the club and you get this second of Gaston's face where he's like huh oh, oh no <laughs> it's not really fear it's just this he immediately begs really uh, no 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 before that before oh. that that's he begs when the beast has him by the neck right when he could yes. actually drop him and kill him this is the first moment the beast decides to resist and presumably the moment where Gaston goes, oh, you're like so much stronger than me. I got nothing. Oh, no. Why oh, did, no. Why did I leave my gun at home? <laughs> you weren't letting me murder you because you were super unhappy about your girlfriend leaving. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, and that's a good moment. Precisely because the expression is so fucking subtle compared to the unsubtlety we have from Gaston up until now. It's like, ha I... I know what you're thinking, and I'm really glad they didn't feel the need to have you tell me. <laughs> That's a good moment. But all good moments, in the end, must be reduced down to their worth to the machine, melted out and poured into coin, <laughs> as we delve deep into the metallic embrace of capitalism. Right. I have looked at the capitalism of this movie before. Let's see how well I remember it. So the main thing I remember is this is way cheaper than you would imagine it being compared to immediately before and after. Yeah, it is a, It is actually a step down from the Rescuers Down Under. Yeah. Which is, which is funny. Rescuers Down Under kind of got its teeth kicked in. And I want to say it costs less than half of Aladdin that comes immediately afterwards. I guess we'll check in with Aladdin when we get there. Yeah, th there's a lot of... Um... We're at the stage where Disney have realized that if you burn a big pile of money, you can get a bigger pile of money. Yeah, the acceleration during the Disney Renaissance is wild. Um, uh, uh, anyway, um, the point is, I, I'm confident this costs less than a hundred million. Um, I want to say it might not. It, I want to say it might even be less than fifty, but let's put it at around fifty. Okay, and as far as its return goes, <laughs> Squidward, all the money. Uh, it it did extremely well. Okay. <laughs> so this movie cost 25 million to make it was less than 50 yay yeah. yeah that wow that's several films ago like little mermaid was more expensive than that and its take to date is 450 million yay. <laughs> frankly oh wait that's cinematic take only isn't it yes that's not home video no. so i was gonna say i know it's made, <laughs> made way more money than that but a lot of it would be on just 
many, many video releases. Do we get any cinematic re-releases for this of note? Uh, I feel like there's been at least one. I didn't check. Okay. And at this point, I don't want to. I think there was one a few years ago is what I'm remembering. Like they made a deal of putting it back in theaters for a couple of weeks or something. Probably to amp up the crowd for the 2017 re-release. Oh my god, it probably was. Actually, it was, wasn't it? There was a, there was a live action. Sorry, yeah, they they did a they did a yeah. um animated yeah. Anyway, uh, moving on from that though, what I wanted to provide in this case is some context. This is the third most successful movie of 1991. It's pretty good. Beat only by Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which made way too much money despite being inexplicably bad. And Terminator Two: Judgment Day. That. It was the highest earning film until Titanic happened. Okay. Good company. No shame in losing to that. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember how much Prince of Thieves made, just that it was kind of exorbitant. Yeah, it, it really is an inexplicable... Like, uh, 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 an internet critic, Steve Sheaves, recently did a thing of like, hey, go back and rewatch this movie. There are ways in which it's a lot better than it looks. <laughs> but, um, you know, I haven't actually delved into it myself, and I'm not going to sit here and go, I'm going to repeat what an internet critic said. I learned my lesson, as you heard from the start of the thing. Maybe it's just because I'm comparing it to the vastly superior Robin Hood, but... Yeah, but that was, at this point, 20 years ago? 12 years ago. Yeah, but my Robin Hood has a British accent, and it lacks both Kevin Costner and... So, like, it's real hard for Prince of Thieves to do better. Who was that second guy you mentioned? You don't know... You don't know... Oh, everybody knows... He was huge! Big, big in the 90s, very big. Lots of, lots of soft rock. Anyway, what's gonna come up next, Fox? What is going to come up next? Well, uh, a movie I don't think is overrated. A movie I think is basically fucking fantastic. But way more racist than you think. Yeah. It's time for Aladdin. Yes. Uh, uh, just going in, preparing you for that. Uh, I think that Aladdin is a rare instance of a movie that is rated. <laughs> yeah. I would say most people think Aladdin is exactly as good as Aladdin is. <laughs> now the live action remake, on the other hand, can go to hell. <laughs> but... On the other hand, I have to give it some credit for there were actually some problems in this to fix. And it tried. <laughs> anyway, that's all for next episode, though. Yep, and for now, we just want to say thank you and goodbye. <laughs> thank you and adieu. <laughs>